Welcome back to another episode of Myths and Mysteries and Black and White with your two hosts, Josh and Ed. Hello. First things first, as always, Ed, how you been, mate? Yeah, not too bad, mate, not too bad. It's been a pretty decent week, to be fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, uh, yesterday I've, I've done my, my childhood aspiration yesterday. Like, I went to uh, help my old man do a job. Mm-hmm. And um, both, if people who know me, I'm a digger driver. And that was because of him. Yeah. And um, yesterday... Like he needed a hand and everything, but he was driving his digger. I was driving the hired one, mm-hmm. but and I'm and I'm looking over and I'm just seeing him. And I, I, if I go back and tell my five year old self, like keep keep at it, it's yeah. Worth it. It, oh man, I was yeah, I had time alive. <laughs> like because lately, like, you know, sometimes I feel like I hate my job. I fucking hate it. Yeah, but then it's moments like that. It's like no, that's the reason why you don't know. Yeah, and yeah, it's worth it. Fair enough, hundred percent worth it. Yeah, yourself. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had a good week. Yesterday was a bit of a downer. <laughs> For those that don't know, I'm a Man United fan, and we lost the FA Cup final yesterday to Manchester City. <laughs> and like I said to you on the way here, it's not even the fact that we lost the final. Mm. It's the fact that they're going to them. <clears throat> they're going to win the treble. Yeah. That's what crushes me the most. You just got you're praying on Inter Milan now. Just, oh, oh, oh yeah, I'm an Inter Milan fan now. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. But yeah, no, I, it's, yeah, it's been alright. It's been a alright week. Yeah. Um, sorry, uh, there weren't an episode last week. We was in the middle of actually recording one. Yeah. But um, things come up to do with Myths and Mysteries in Black and White, mm-hmm. and um, and they. Really, it really divided our attention. Yeah, it? yeah, so, and it took more quite a while to sort out. Yeah, so. sort out everything. So, yeah, we do apologise for that, but luckily, you're getting one this week. Yeah, and this is going to be a weird one because I think it's the first time we've actually had to do a two-parter. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, which is a bit mad. But if there's anyone that warrants a two-parter, is this Donny? Yeah, and. Obviously, you guys know by the title, but unless you don't know, <laughs> we're talking about one of the biggest serial killers, not just in UK, but worldwide, like most renowned serial killers. I think he's like known as like one of the first. Yeah. Like one man band kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. Right? But not only that, it's also one of the biggest mysteries Yeah, worldwide and in the UK. Um, we will be talking about the Whitechapel killer, Jack the Ripper. Yeah, which still still hurts that you got it. It's still a bit better, but you know, <laughs> in some ways, I'm actually I'm looking back and I'm thinking, why am I doing that? Like, <laughs> no, I think it's because it is. Well, it's not even a myth, is it? It's more of a mystery. It, yeah, as I say, it happened. <laughs> There's yeah. no myth about it. Yeah, it's more. I think the only myth side you can say is who was it? Yeah, like, it's so many different people. But even then, that's more of a mystery when I think yeah. about it. Ah well. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> oh, we've got to get you. We're trying to get used to not swearing yeah. so much because we um we are hopefully 
going to be on uh, a new website called Combo Box TV. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what that is, that's pretty much like like a YouTube and Netflix kind of thing where you subscribe every month. And with that, it is everything to do with cryptids, the paranormal, UFOs, conspiracies, you name it, like our, to- our field. Yeah. Our type of field. It is actually going to be on Combo Box TV. Yeah. Which we are so looking forward to being a part of. Yep. Uh, because as, like for our benefit, it's where we could actually get monetized. Mm-hmm. So we can actually earn a little bit. Yeah. I'm not saying we're going to earn fortune no be nice to yeah so everyone subscribe (laughs) (laughs) but obviously we'll go a bit more in detail when we know fully about it and everything but what i can basically say for like the gist of it there will our usual episodes they will still be on youtube they'll still be on spotify everything like how it is now and for those that have been listening for a while hopefully all of you yeah boy we've been saying for ages that we've been trying to get a patreon up and sorted that's Dead in the water. Yeah, that's, right. That's just a nightmare to deal with, and yeah, for the time being, sense. I'll say at the least, uh, Patreon is not happening. So no. basically, think of Combo Box TV as our Patreon. So our exclusive episodes and that they'll be on there. Don't get me wrong; these episodes will be on there as well. Yeah, but for the streaming service and everything, um, like the. What was it? Two ninety nine a month. Yeah, two, the two ninety nine a month. You will be getting exclusive episodes, which will be just on there and there alone. Yeah, and all different kind of things like that. Yeah. So there'll be live streams. There'll be, like I said, exclusive episodes. Mm. Um, certain vlogs think, behind behind the scenes. Yeah, th- things like that, basically. Yeah. So once we know more details and everything's finalized, you guys will be the first to know, and then. We'll, we'll give you guys the links and everything like that and please join our combo box channel yeah please do because i think um because i think with it it's gonna it's gonna help us yeah and as well um because and i think as well it's, it, it's gonna help us in a way because people are on there for the, for that thing yeah even though like um it might be hard for people like to find us mm-hmm. or whatever they haven't heard of us on there It'd be like it. It will come up. It'll just come up like uh, with missing mystery by yeah. away. And I completely then... forgot to say as well that two ninety nine a month is not just for our channel. No, you pay two ninety nine a month. You will get every single channel, every single video, everything to do with any content creator that is on Combo Box TV. Yeah, you will get the works. You will get every single one. So if you want to, hopefully watch ours. <laughs> but then if you want to branch out and look at a few other people's content and things like that, yeah, you're easy enough to do so. Yeah, Deborah Hatswell, who we interviewed, yeah. who's a leader of the BBR, she is on there. Uh, another podcast who I enjoy called Cryptid Creatures, they're on there. And um, yeah, and a few others. So yeah, please, please, please get yourself on there. Cause yeah. I think I think. I think it's going to be the way to go. Yeah, uh, especially for our field, because like we with YouTube and stuff, because it's such a saturated platform mm-hmm. and it's so varied. I mean, let's be honest. Like the bigger biggest YouTubers work like on Earth are either major vloggers, yeah, or gamers, yeah. So it's hard for like our sort of niche topics, so to speak, yeah, to get higher up in the algorithm. Yeah, in the algorithms. So. so combo places like combo box and everything they're going to be the way forward because it's just purely for our yeah speciality 
so to speak. Yeah. So, like I said, once we know more about it, you'll you be, guys the first will be the first to know. to know. Yeah. But no, yeah. So that's that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so obviously, like I said, we will be talking about Jack the Ripper. Yeah, boy. Which you said you're splitting into a two-parter. Yeah, yeah. The first, this first part is going to be on the actual murders, like the the, the women that were killed, mm-hmm. and then the second part are, are, the, are the suspects. Yeah, uh, the ones who they think is Jack the Ripper. Yeah. So yeah, so it's going it's going to be a mad one. I think this one's going to be longer. I'm not sure, but it depends on how we do like how we discuss it yeah. as well. Yeah. But um, but yeah. Here we go. Without, oh, sorry, I almost choked. Without further ado, take it away. Let's get into this. The Jack the Ripper murders occurred in the east end of London in 1888, and although the Whitechapel murderer was only a threat to a small section of the community in a relatively small part of London, the crimes had a huge impact on society as a whole. And that's not just in London, that's the no. UK, the world. Mm-hmm. Madness. <coughs> Indeed, by folks to the attention of the press and the public at large on the streets, and people of one of London's poorest and most crime-ridden quarters, Jack the Ripper, whoever he may have been, man- managed to expose a sordid under- the, the sordid underbelly of Victorian society, and in, do- and in so doing, he helped create an awareness amongst the wealthier citizens of London of the appalling social conditions that had been allowed to develop largely unchecked, right on the doorstep of the City of London, the wealthiest square uh, the wealthiest square mile on Earth. I don't think it is anymore. No, no. <laughs> I think Dubai's got that unlocked. Pretty much. Um, one of the problems with a certain exact number of victims that Jack the Ripper had is the fact that he was never caught, so it's difficult to ascertain an exact number of victims. The generic Whitechapel murders file, the official name for the police investigation into the crimes, contains 11 victims. And it is generally believed that five of these were the work as the killer now known as Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. However, it should be stressed that the idea of there being a so-called canonical... Canonical... Canonical. Yeah, canonical. Yeah, fuck no. The canonical five victims is by no means certain. Indeed, many experts will tell you that there may have been as few as four victims, mm-hmm. or as many as eight victims of the Ripper. Mm-hmm. The first one is Mary Nichols. At 3.30am on August 31st, 1888, Charles Cross, remember that name, for our next episode. Charles Cross left his home in Doverston Street, Bethnal Green, and set off to work to his place of work at Pickford's near Liverpool, Liverpool Street, sorry, where he was employed as a carman or delivery driver. Headed along Brady Street, Brady Street, he turned into Bucks Row and commenced walking along its right side. As he approached the looming bulk of 1876 Board School, he do- uh, which dominated and still dominates the western end of the Ferg section of Bucks Row. He noticed a dark bundle lying in the gateway on the opposite side of the street. As with many of the district's thoroughfares, street lighting in Bucks Row was minimal, so at first Cross could not be sure exactly what the bundle was. It looked it looked something like a discarded tarpaulin, and so thinking that it might prove useful for his job, Cross went to inspect it. 
But as he drew closer, he realised that it was in fact the prone form of a woman who was either dead or drunk, and he stopped in his tracks. As Cross stood rooted to the spot and sure of what to do next, he heard footsteps approaching from the direction that he, heard, that he had just come from. Turning, he saw another car, Robert Paul, walking towards him. Cross said, come, out, come and have a look at this. There is a woman lying in the pavement. The two men stepped over the road and stooped down over the pro- prostrate figure. She was lying on her back, her legs were straight out, and her skirts were raised almost over her waist. Charles Cross reached out and touched her face, which was warm, and her hands, which were cold and limp. I believe she is dead, he, um, Robert Paul said, while meanwhile placed his hand on the woman's chest. Dirty bugger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and thought he felt a slight movement. I think she's breathing, he said, but very little if she is. Paul suggested that they sit the woman up, but Cross refused to touch her again. Mm-hmm. That's why you need to remember the name. Mm-hmm. So decided, perhaps somewhat callously, that they were late for work <laughs> and had done as much as they could. <laughs> they pulled her skirts down to her knees to cover her decency and set off for their respective places of employment, <laughs> agreeing to tell the first, pl- but agreeing to tell the first policeman they encountered. Um, encountered on their way but what neither men had noticed in the pitch darkness of Buck's Row was that the woman's throat had been slashed so savagely that according to some newspaper reports her head had almost been severed from her body right these were hard buggers back in the day because they looked at this woman thinking she might be dead and went cool we're late for work we better get going (laughs) not the fact like this is a crime scene there's a poor murdered girl on the street. We better get the police. Well, yeah. It's, oh, we got to go to work. But if we see a copper on the way, we'll, we'll let, let him know. <laughs> and not only that, right? You said one of them touched her face. Mm. How could you not see that the neck was slashed? It's right there. Yeah, but if she's lying... <laughs> she's lying... <laughs> like, say her head's... Like, the back of her head's on a, cur- on a curve. Yeah. Also, her chin's pulled, pushed down. You ain't gonna see it unless you move. But then surely you see like the puddle of blood. Well, if d- dimly, dimly lit. Or did he see it? Mm. And That's he's it. just thinking, need to get rid of this, Donny. Yeah. I'm late for work. I don't know about you, boss. I'll see you in a bit. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll let the first couple we know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> nice one. Um, that discovery of the body was made by beat officer, police constable John Neal who walked into Buck's Row and proceeded to walk past the board school shortly after Cross and Paul had left the scene. There was not a soul about, he later told the inquest into the woman's death. I had been round there half an hour previously and saw no one then. I was on the right side when I noticed a figure lying in the street. It was dark at the time. I examined the body by the aid of my lamp and noticed blood oozing from a neck, from a wound, from a wound in the throat. She was lying on her back, with, which, with her clothes dis- disarranged. I felt her arm, which was quite warm from the joints upwards. Her eyes were wide open. Her bonnet was off and lying at her side. The bonnet's that thing at the front. Of it. Yeah. <coughs> As Neil stooped down over the body, he noticed PC John Thane passing the end of the street and flashed his lantern to attract his attention. There's a woman with a throat cut, he called out to the approaching colleague. 
um, run at once for Dr. Llewellyn. As Fane hurried off to fetch the medic, PC Mizzen, who had been alerted by Cross and Paul, arrived at the scene. Neil sent him to bring reinforcements and asked him to also fetch the police ambulance. Dr. Llewellyn arrived at around 4am and carried out a um, accuracy examination of the body. Noting the severity of the wounds to the throat, he pronounced life extinct. She did. She did. On a close examination, he also observed that the deceased body and legs were still warm, although her hands and wrists were quite cold. This led him to surmise that she could not have been dead for more than half an hour. So how quick did this copper find him after this? these two found him? He was just after. Mm. Pretty much. Did matey boy literally just do it? Well, that is it. In fact, the observation by the doctor suggests that the murderer may have well have been at the scene when Charles Cross came strolling along Buck's Row on his way to work. So you imagine that. Say with this Charles Cross, he's walked there, he's seen the body and everything, but over his shoulder, he's or just in the shadows, was Jack, Jack the Ripper. Ripper. How, How close he was. To be in to be in there, he could have saved. Like if he was ten minutes earlier, he could have saved that girl's life. Yeah, it's mad. It's mad to say it works. As Llewellyn went about his grim business, news of the murder was beginning to filter through the immediate neighbourhood. In adjacent Winthrop Street, there stood a horse slaughterer's yard, where three slaughtermen, Harry Tompkins, James Mumford, and Charles Britton, had been working throughout the night. They had heard nothing and knew nothing of the murder until informed of it by P.C. Thane as he passed their premises en route to fetch Dr. Llewellyn. They had gone round to view the body and remained at the scene until the woman was removed to the mortuary. The three men would later find themselves under suspicion and were interrogated separately by by the police before being eliminated as, as suspects. They were joined at the murder site by Patrick Molshaw, a night watchman, who was working at the nearby sewer works. Although he did confess that he sometimes dozed on duty, he was emphatic that he had been awake between 3am and 4am and ha- and he had not seen or heard anything suspicious. <coughs> but around 20 minutes to 5 o'clock, a passing stranger had told him, Watchman, old man, I believe somebody is murdered down the street and he immediately went round to Buck's Row. The police appear to have made attempts to trace Molshaw's mystery informant, but their inquiries proved, uh, proved unsuccessful. So was that him? Could that have been Jack the Ripper? Literally just done it. Gone round and said, oh yeah, there's a body there. Um, I'll just say it. Yeah. Just walked off. Yeah. Oh, that's creepy, isn't it? You imagine being that night watchman and a bloke like, just come out of the shadows and said, and was like, what, watchman, old man, there's a body down that street and walks off. The, the, the mad thing is, we'll never know. No. That's what's annoying about this whole thing. We yeah. will never know. Oh, that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah. That's why I love it. <clears throat> Dr. Llewellyn was by now becoming a little disconcerted at the number of sightseers that were arriving at the scene, and he ordered that the body to be removed uh, to the mortuary, where he would make a further examination. Mm -hmm. Thane and Neil lifted the body onto the police ambulance, 
Which was just a handcart. Yeah, yeah. Got to remember, this was in the 1800s. There weren't no big Nino. (laughs) (laughs) As they did so, they noticed that the back of the woman's clover was soaked with blood, which he presumed had run down from the neck wound. He also observed a mass of congealed blood under the body, which was around six inches in diameter, and which had begun to run towards the gutter. Oh, that's a bit grim, isn't it? Yeah. The relatively small amount of blood found at the scene, coupled with the fact that no one in the vicinity um, had heard a sound, would by the end of the day lead to speculation that the murder had been carried out somewhere uh, out elsewhere, and the body simply dumped where it was found. Right. This is what the Times said at the time. <laughs> it seemed difficult to believe that the woman received her death wounds there. If the woman was murdered on the spot where the body was found, it is impossible to believe she would not she would not have aroused the neighbourhood by her screams. Buckrose being a street tenanted all down one side by a respectable class of people. But this theory was given some consideration at a subsequent inquest into the woman's death, but the coroner was quick to dismiss it in this in his summing up. The condition of the body appeared to prove conclusively that the deceased was killed on the exact spot in which she was found. I was going to say, because all he had to do was like cover her mouth. Yeah, cover and then when he cuts her throat, she ain't going to be able to scream. No. Because her throat is open. Dead note there. <laughs> no connecting. <laughs> <laughs> her esophagus is gone. That and all. Freaking gone. <laughs> <laughs> she was parched. <laughs> um, there was not a trace of blood anywhere except at the spot where her neck was lying. This circumstance be sufficient to justify the assumption that the injuries to the throat were committed when the woman was on the ground was the state of her clothing and the absence of any blood around her legs suggested that the abdominal injuries were inflicted while she was in, still in the same position. So he got her on the floor pretty much. Yeah. Sliced her throat and sheft her up. Yeah. Evidently, most of the blood had been absorbed into the clothing, a fact that was all too apparent to PC Thane, whose hands became covered in the stuff as he lifted her onto the ambulance, which we said. Um, At 4.30am, I'm guessing this is still the morning murder, Inspector Spratling was on Hackney Road when word reached him that a body had been found in Bucks Row. He hurried to the scene of the crime, where he found one of the residents washing the blood away, and he was informed that the body had been removed to the mortuary. Spratlin headed round to the mortuary in nearby Old Montague, Old Montague Street, which was in reality little more than a brick shed. <laughs> and there he began taking down a description of the deceased. At first he noticed only the neck wounds previously noted by Dr Llewellyn, but on closer inspection he discovered something that had so far eluded everyone. Beneath her blood-stained clothing, a deep gash ran all the way along the woman's abdomen. She had been disemboweled. Jesus! This is madness. 
Spratling sent immediately for Dr. Llewellyn in order that he might comment on the newly discovered injuries. But before the medic had arrived and could carry out a more detailed inspection, two senile workhouse paupers, Robert Mann and James Hatfield, stripped the body of its clothing and proceeded to wash it down. Dumping the garments in an untidy pile in the mortuary yard. So he fucked up there. What do you mean? <laughs> so yeah, he they pretty much have buggered up the entire investigation. They could have got something a lot better if they left him alone. But they, I think they were just working on impulse. Yeah. Like, oh, these must be looked at. Clean yeah. Them <clears throat> so put like a keep out sign. Yeah. <laughs> Warning. Do Don't touch. Yeah. <laughs> um, the coroner would later criticise the police for allowing this to happen, whereas the police were adamant that they had not given instructions that the the body was to be disturbed until Llewellyn had con- conducted a full and detailed post mortem examination. Right. So that's a bit of. I didn't say yeah, it. So no, yeah. you didn't say it. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean. No one's but, taking the blame, so to speak. Mm, but that was the first victim. The second victim now was a woman called Annie Chapman. She was 47 years of age. Um, at the time of her death. A short, plump, ashen-faced cons- uh, consumptive who, for four or so months prior to her death, had been living at Crossingham's lodging house at number 35 Dorset Street, where she paid eight, pe- eight pence a night for a double bed. Eight pence? Yeah. Like I said, I know it's the 1800s, but imagine that nowadays. Yeah, it'd be amazing. Oh, it? my. Um, she appears to have enjoyed a cordial relationship with the other tenants and the deputy keeper, Timothy Donovan. Mm-hmm. Remembered her as being an inoffensive soul whose main weakness was a fondness for drink. She was a pisshead, basically. Yep. Like many of the women in the area, Annie supplemented the, the meagre income she obtained from crochet work and making and selling artificial f- flowers with prostitution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sell artificial flowers. Oh, business must be booming. I mean, you're making what? Eight pence a week? Yeah. Business is booming, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Buy this rose and I'll lift my legs. Buy this rose, I'll show you mine. Buy a flower, I'll show you mine. Why are we talking northern? This is I London. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. She had two regular clients, one known as Harry the Hawker and the other man named Ted Stanley. I thought you were supposed to say Harry the Horny. <laughs> well, you know, he's, a bo- he's a bit of a bugger. Uh, Ted Stanley, a supposed retired soldier who was known to her fellow lodgers as the Pensioner. What a lovely name. As it later transpired, Stanley was neither a retired soldier nor a pensioner, <laughs> but was in fact a bricklayer's labourer who oh. lived at number one Osborne Place, Whitechapel. This poor Donny. Oh, no. <laughs> According to Timothy Donovan... Uh, Stanley would frequently spend Saturdays to Mondays with Annie at Crossingham's. He also claimed that Stanley had told him to turn Annie away should she ever arrive at the lodging house with other men. Stanley, however, vehemently denied this this and claimed to have visited Annie only once or twice 
Yeah. Your wife's on you. That's what it's really yeah. about. Yeah. Did you? Did you really? Of course you did, my You're son. You're well known, yeah, bugger. <laughs> <laughs> pensioner got his peck around. <laughs> Whatever Annie's relationship with the pensioner, he seems to have been the cause of the only trouble that Timothy Donovan could remember her being involved in all her time at Crossingham's. At some stage in the month before her death, different witnesses remembered different dates, there had been a fracas between Annie and fellow lodger Eliza Cooper. The full details of the argument told by different witnesses are confusing and contradictory, with some even claiming that Harry the Hawker was the cause. He got jealous. He got jealous that the pensioner was having her, and he's like, nah, she's mine. Why Eliza Cooper got involved? I don't know. Yeah. According to Eliza Cooper, in her inquest testimony, she she had loaned Annie Chapman a bar of soap, which Annie had given to Ted Stanley, who they, who then went to wash with it. Over the next few days, Eliza asked several times for the return of the soap. Expensive things back in the day. Yeah. Only to be dismissed by Annie, who on one occasion contemptuously tossed a halfpenny onto the lodging house kitchen table and told her to go and get half a halfpenny of soap. The animosity was still evident when the two women met a few days later in the Britannia pub on the eastern corner of Dorset Street. However, on this occasion, Annie slapped Eliza across the face, screaming as she did so. (laughs) Think, (laughs) Think yourself lucky, I don't do more. Eliza retaliated by punching Annie in the eye (laughs) and then hard across the chest. (laughs) Annie appears to have come off worse from the exchange of blows and the bruises she sustained were still evident when Dr. Phillips carried out her post-mortem. So basically, Annie slapped her a bit of soap. soap. She slapped him. And, and then there's a lot. Just giving them a left, right, good night. Yeah, she just suplexed her. <laughs> <laughs> she just got a slap, so he's like, "Right, I'm tombstoning you." Go on, <laughs> she, yeah, just, she, she got knocked out. <laughs> it, of course, it should be remembered that this is the account given by Eliza Cooper at Annie Chapman's inquest, and she was no doubt anxious to portray herself as the injured party. Whatever the course of the argument, Annie's chapter last days was spent bruised and in pain. Her health rapidly falling. You love that. She's a poor girl. She was in pain. How <laughs> did this woman hit her? Yeah. Tur- <laughs> turns out she was the East London's kickboxing champion. <laughs> of eternal bleeding. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine that. What can I just picture like Tyson Fury in a wig? <laughs> Annie Chapman, you big dosser. <laughs> you big bomb dosser. I'll find you here and I'll find you now. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> On Monday, 3rd of September. What a day. What a day. If you don't know, that's my birthday. That's the day of legends. This is where she died. That one. On Monday, 3rd of September, when she met her friend Amelia Palmer on Dorset Street, the bruising to her right temple was more than evident. Um, Amelia asked how she got it, and but Annie's response was to 
was to open her dress and show her the bruising on her chest. <laughs> cool, how'd you do your face? <laughs> what? She's probably gone like they said, Cool, how'd you get that? Never mind that. Look at this. <laughs> what the bats? I know you do that as a part time job, but no, that's not what I'm asking. <laughs> Have I got to pay for this? <laughs> I just got to see a bruise and now I'm skinned. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, big like I say, third of September, Day of Legends. <laughs> Amelia bumped into Annie again the next day, close to Spitfield, Spitfields at church, and commented on how pale she looked. This poor girl, she's getting beaten up, <laughs> insults thrown at her anywhere. All she wants to do is sell an artificial flag and get a leg over. <laughs> she just wants to give you a day, he give you give you a good night's kiss. And now she's getting punched, beaten up, getting told is, she looks like crap. And the thing is, we know how this ends. <laughs> yeah, <I> know. <laughs> this poor girl. I feel so sorry for her. <laughs> um, Annie told her that she felt no better and that she might admit herself into the, uh, to the casual ward for a few days. When Amelia asked if she could had anything to eat that day, Annie replied, no, I haven't had a cup, a cup of tea today. So that's basically a meal. <laughs> Back in the days, I imagine. You had anything to eat, Annie? No, I had a cup of tea. That's not what I asked, Annie. <laughs> Meal, tea. That just shows how British it, yeah. it is. <laughs> Amelia handed her two pence to buy some food and warned her not to spend it on rum. If it was cracking, I'd get it. Yeah, yeah. Love that. Um, three days later, at around 5pm on the 7th of September, Amelia saw um, again saw Annie in Dorset Street. She looked even worse and complained of feeling too ill to do anything. She was still standing in the same place when Amelia passed her again 10 minutes later, although she was now trying desperately to rally her spirits. It's no use giving way. I must pull myself together and get some money or I shall have no lodgings, were the last words Amelia Palmer heard Annie, pa- Annie Chapman speak. <laughs> A little before 6am, John Davis, an elderly resident of 29 Hanbury Street, came downstairs, walked along the narrow passageway, and opened the back door. A sight that met his eyes sent him reeling back in horror. Moments later, two workmen walking along Hanbury Street, was suddenly startled when, from the open door of number 29, a wild-eyed old man came stumbling into the street. Come here, he said. To, he cried out to the men. Nervously, they followed him along the passageway, and looking into the yard, uh, the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, they saw the mutilated body of Annie Chapman lying on the ground between the steps and the wooden fence. Jesus... Her head was turned towards the house and her clothes had been tugged up above her waist, exposing her red and white striped stockings. A handkerchief was tied around her throat. She had been wearing this when the killer cut her throat and it had not, as has often been asserted, been tied by the murderer to stop her head from rolling away. (laughs) Resourceful. What's that with Bear Grylls you say? Adapt, um, survive, oh, something else. Overcome? Uh, was yeah, it? adapt, overcome, overcome survive. survive. 
Um, after a few moments of stunned silence, the three men sprang into action and racing out of the house set off in all different directions to find a policeman. The horror of what he had witnessed immediately began to sink in with James Kent causing him to abandon his search and go instead for a brandy to steady his nerves. <laughs> yes, please, please. please. Ooh, drink. Yeah. I need, please, I can't believe what I see. Brandy sounds good right now. <laughs> Henry Holland raced up to Commercial Street and headed across to Spitalfields Market, where he encountered a constable on fixed point penal- uh, fixed point duty. Sorry, Holland painted out, um, panted out news of their find, and was somewhat taken aback when the officer curtly informed him that it was against procedure for him to leave his post. He was so angered by the by the officer's officious attitude that he later made an official complaint to Commercial Street Police Station. Go on, only to be told that the officer had been correct to follow procedure and not leave his post. What? See, this is why Jack the Ripper was able to do what he can. Because you saw that cop and went, well, he ain't moving. Shoom. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's not like they had radios. But like, oh, we need backup. This is... <laughs> You ma- look, you can imagine him like just being a, like, "Oi, oi, life! Have a look at this, will ya? I can't leave it, can I? Oh yeah." <laughs> John Davis, meanwhile, had headed to Commercial Street Police Station and bursting in through its doors, breathlessly demanded to see a senior officer. Moments later, Inspector Joseph Chandler was hurrying along Commercial Street. Turning along Hansbury Street, turning along Hansbury Street, he forced his way through the spectators who were already gathering in the passage of Number Twenty Nine. He ordered that the facility be cleared of all sightseers, and then sent a constable back to Commercial Street Police Station, instructing him to bring as many reinforcements as possible in order that the crowds might be contained. Another officer was dispatched to fetch Dr. George Baxter Phillips, the divisional police surgeon. Chandler then acquired some sacking from one of the neighbours and used it to cover the body until the arrival of the police surgeon. Mm-hmm. By the time Phillips arrived at around 6.30am, the crowd outside was some several hundred strong. Jesus! Casting a cursory cursory glance down at the body, it was more than obvious to him that the woman was beyond medical help. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Really? How much is this Donnie getting paid to say that? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Ah, she did. (laughs) Oh, cheers. I worked that one out myself, mate. (laughs) (laughs) His testimony in the inquest recalled what he saw. The left arm was placed across the left breast. The legs were... I'm going to try and do it at the same time. Alright. The legs were drawn up, the feet rested on the ground, and the knees turned outwards. The face was swollen and turning on the right side. The tongue protruded between the front teeth but not beyond the lips. The tongue was evidently much swollen. The front teeth were... (laughs) The front teeth... <laughs> but not be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe leave where I am. 
the, the front teeth were perfect as, as far as the first molar, top and bottom, and very fine teeth they were. The t- Why is he checking oh, out a teeth? He loves teeth. <laughs> like me with skulls. I love skulls. <laughs> I love crocodiles. <laughs> I get it. I love skulls. I love crocodile skulls, deer skulls, dinosaur skulls. I just love skulls. Um, <laughs> the body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limbs was not marked, but was evidently commencing. He noticed that the throat was dissevered deeply, that the incisions through the skin were jagged and reached right round the neck. On the wooden paling between the yard in question and the next smears of blood corresponding to where the head of the deceased lay, um, lay to be were to be seen. These were about 14 inches from the ground and immediately above the part where the blood from the neck lay. Later that day, the post-mortem would reveal that the killer had definitely cut out Annie Chapman's womb and had gone off, and had gone off with it. Jesus Christ! But at, but at the hour of the morning, there was a little more that Dr. Phillips could do at the scene. So having pronounced the woman dead, he ordered that she be removed to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary in Eagle Street off Old Montague, off Old Montague Street. Watched by the agitated crowd, a battered coffin was carried from the building and placed on the police ambulance, which set off eastwards along Brick Lane, Hanbury Street, then turned right onto Brick Street. Brick Lane, sorry. A little before 7am, it pulled up outside the mortuary gates where Robert Mann, whose unauthorised stripping and washing down the body of Mary Nichols, was no doubt still fresh in the minds of the police was waiting to receive it. Mm-hmm. When Inspector Chandler turned up uh, a few minutes later, he took one look at Ma- at Man and made it clear that nobody was to touch the corpse until Dr. Phillips had completed his post-mortem examination. Right. Satisfied that his instructions had been understood, Chandler, Chandler placed PC Barnes in charge and headed back to Commercial Street Police Station. Both he and Dr. Phillips were furious to later discover that within two hours of his departure, two nurses acting on instructions from the clerk of the workhouse guardians had once more stripped to wash a body before a post-mortem could be carried out. <sighs> Don't it just wind you up. Yeah. But then, if it all got sorted, we wouldn't have the legend of Jack the Ripper. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's sad because yeah. these women then had their oh, justice. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, I ain't mad about it. <laughs> as bad as that you sounds. You would be fuming during the time, though. Oh, yeah. You'd be You're like, oh, it's like when it happens now. Well, yeah. It's disgusting. Well, but the fact is, they literally said, no one touched the body. Yeah. Yeah, go on. Just sort that body out for me while you're at it. Mm. How thick can you be? Majorly. Yeah. Alright, so that was the second victim. The third victim um, is a woman called Elizabeth or Longley Stride. <laughs> Echo out the best name, don't they? Big up Longley. Longley Stride. <laughs> Spent the last afternoon of her life cleaning rooms in a lodging house at number 32 Flower and Dean Street, where she had lived on and 
on and off for the previous six years. The deputy keeper, Elizabeth Tanner, paid her sixpence for the chores, and by 6.30pm, Elizabeth was staking her first in the nearby Queen's Head pub at the junction of Fashion and Commercial Streets. By 7pm, she had returned to the lodging house and was according uh, and was according fellow resident Charles Preston, from who she borrowed a clothes brush, dressed ready to go out, having chatted briefly with another lodger. Catherine Lane, Liz Stride, left the... Uh, oh, having chatted briefly with another lodger, Catherine Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liz Stride left the lo- uh, lodging house at around 7.30pm. It rained heavily that night, and the next sighting of her was at 11 o'clock when Jay Best and John Gardner were certain that they saw her sheltering in the doorway of the Bricklayers Arms on Settle Street. Ugh. She was in the company of a man who was about 5 foot 5 inches tall. Uh, bless him. He had a black moustache, sandy eyelashes and was wearing a black morning suit together with a billy cock hat. What's a billy cock hat? I have no idea. Is it one of them that makes you look taller? It's got to be because he was 5 foot 5, yeah. mate. <laughs> According to Best, they did not appear willing to go out. He was hu- he was hugging and kissing her, and he and as he seemed a respectably dressed man, we were rather astonished at the way he was going on with that with the woman. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, it's just a traditional like eighteen hundred hat. Oh, but like a bowler hat. Yeah, 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 like a bowler hat then. Um, the two men couldn't resist a little light-hearted banter at the couple's expense and, rem- and remarked to the woman, watch out, that's a leather apron getting round you. <laughs> Embar- embarrassed by the chaffer, the couple went off like a shot and Best of Gardner watched them hurry off through the rain towards Commercial Road. At around 11.45pm, William Marshall, a labourer who lived at number 64 Burner Street, was standing outside his lodgings when he noticed a man and woman outside number 63. They both seemed quite sober, and as he watched them, bega- uh, began to kiss. Marshall heard the man re- uh, remark to the woman, you would say anything but your prayers. What? Dad, I don't know. That's <laughs> added, that sounds naughty. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the couple then moved off, heading in the direction of Duckfield's yard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Marshall described the man as being middle-aged and stout and <laughs> and had the appearance of a clerk. He was around five feet, six inches tall. He got an inch taller. Hey, come on, brother. Get in, every inch counts, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Clean-shaven and respectfully dressed, he wore a small black cutaway coat, dark trousers and a round cap with a small sailor-like peak. Oh, so that's a different hat. Changes hats. At 12.30am, PC William Smith proceeded along Burner Street on his beat and noticed a man and a woman on the opposite side of the road to Duckfield's yard, where Elizabeth Stry's body was later discovered. The man was approximately 28 years old with a dark complexion and a small dark moustache. He was about 5 foot 7 inches tall. Hey, he's getting bigger by he, the second. He's getting taller and taller. Go on, son. He, <laughs> By the end of it, he was seven foot five. <laughs> he was a giant. <laughs> he had a dark. He had on a dark overcoat, a hard felt 
Deerstalker Dark Hat and Ark Cloven. Dark Cloven, I'm guessing that means. Mm. The woman whom Smith later identified as Elizabeth Stride had a flower pinned to her jacket. However, the couple were doing nothing that aroused Smith's, uh, Smith's suspicions, so he continued on his beat, keeping ahead onto Commercial Road. At number 40 Burner Street was the International Workmen's Educational Club, which had been founded by uh, founded in 1884 by a group of Jewish so- socialists. Shalom, brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Member Morris Eagle had left the club at around tw- quarter past twelve to walk his young lady home. Returning to the club at uh, 25 minutes to one, he found the front door locked, so went through the gates into Dutfield's yard and entered the club via its back door. He noticed nothing on the ground by the gates as he passed through them and was sure he would have noticed if a man and a woman had been in the yard at the time. However, since the yard itself was pitch black, he was not able to say for certain if the body of Elizabeth Stride could have been in there at that time. Mm -hmm. At more more or less the, the exact moment that the body of Elizabeth Stride was being discovered at Dutfield's yard, another prostitute named Catherine or Kate Eddowes was being released from Bishopsgate Police Station in the City of London. At around... Um, at around 8.30pm the previous evening, she had been entertaining a delighted a crowd of onlookers outside 29, Aldgate High Street, with a spontaneous, though drunken, imitation of a fire engine. What? What, what is this? <laughs> Having taken a bow, she lay down on the pavement and went to sleep. What? Let's just say, like, she... <laughs> She pretended to be a fire engine. Is that a polite way of saying she pissed anyway? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm so confused. I'm a bit bamboozled here. How did she pretend? What? Well, she was just on her hands and knees going, Woo! 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 <laughs> Hang on. Ah, oh, still, yeah, yeah. We're still on the right one, I think. But this is a bit mad. <laughs> um, that's dummy in that. <laughs> PC Robinson of the of the city police arrived on the scene and asked if any of the onlookers knew who she was or where she lived. None of them did. So Robinson hauled her to her feet and leant her against the wall. She promptly slid back down onto the pavement, no doubt to further amusement to the, of the crowd. Um, Robinson summoned a colleague PC, George Simmons, to his assistance, and together they manhandled her to Bishopsgate Police Station. Here, when asked the name, Kate replied, nothing. The officers placed her in a cell and left her to sober up. She had soon fallen into a comatose sleep. PC George Hutt, City Gowler, came on duty at 10pm and took over the responsibility of the prisoners in the cells. He checked on her several times over the next few hours and and found her still fast asleep each time he did so. But by 12.15 she had woken and Hutt heard her singing softly. 
15 minutes later she called to him and asked when she would be allowed to leave when um when you could take care of yourself Huck called back I can do that now came a reply at 12.55 he brought her from a, from the cell and told her she could go when he asked her her name and address for the release release papers she told him it was Mary Ann Kelly of 6 Fashion Street alright Discharging her from custody, Hutt pushed open the swing door to the passage and said, This way, missus. As she walked along the passage to the outer door, she asked him what time it was. Too late for you to get any more drink, observed her. <laughs> I, shall, I shall get a damn fine um, hiding when I get home, she sighed as she opened the door. Hutt was, was not in the least bit sympathetic. Sympathetic, sympathetic, <laughs> and serve you right," he replied. <laughs> "You have no right to get drunk. Madness. <laughs> What's happening right now? As so Kate, we've got, we've got crazy Kate who's just pretended to be fire engine. Yeah, I know. She's been arrested. Many boys come in and said, oh, crazy Kate's back in again. Yeah, yeah. What's she done this time? Oh, she's pretending to be a fire fireman. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> then halfway through the night, here's the singing the sound of music." Then he's released her and said, and she's gone, what's your name? Marianne. Okay, yeah, all right, nice one. <laughs> then he's released her, gone, and she's gone, what time is it? Ah, it's too late for you to get a drink. Oh, I'm going to get a hiding when I get home. I didn't ask, get out of it. <laughs> yeah, so if you're right. As Kate left the station, I asked her to shut the door behind her. All right, she chirped, good night, old cock. So... Saying she turned left and headed off towards Houndsditch, according to Hutt's late estimation, it would have taken her around eight minutes, ordinary walking, to reach Mitre Square, during which time the murderer of Elizabeth Stride was also headed towards the square from the opposite direction. That's how it's linked. Because I'm thinking, I thought my notes were fucked then. I'm thinking, <laughs> where's this girl coming to me? <laughs> At 1am, Louis... Um, Louis Deemschutz, the steward of the International Work and Men's Educational Club, returned to Duckfield's yard from West O'Hill Market, near Crystal Palace, where he had spent the day hawking the cheap jewellery. As he turned his pony and car into the yard, his pony shied to the, uh, to the left and refused to go any further. Looking into the yard, Deemschutz saw a dark form lying on the ground close to the wall of the club. Leaning forward, he prodded it with his whip and tried to lift it. When this proved unsuccessful, he jumped down to investigate and struck a match to get a better view. It was windy that night, and the match was extinguished almost immediately. But in the brief seconds of flickering light, he saw that it was a woman lying on the ground. Thinking it might be his wife, he went... He went into the club by the side entrance and finding his wife safe. Told several club members there's a woman lying in the yard, but I cannot say whether she is drunk or dead. What? Just talk about zero to a hundred. <laughs> I don't know if she's pissed or, or pushing daisies. I don't, I don't even know. know if this is Mrs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, not again, love. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. oh, shit. I wonder if it is her. Guys, oh, you're, you're still there. Well, she's probably gyrated some other fucking Jew. 
Um, taking a candle, dime shirts, dime shirts, returned to the yard with several other club members. Now he noticed blood by the body, and those present winced in horror when they saw that the woman's throat had been cut. The various club members rushed from the yard and hurried off into the surrounding streets to find a police constable. Dime shirts and a companion headed along Fairclough Street, shouting "Murder!" and "Police!" At its junction with Christian Street, they met Edward Spooner. Big up, Edward. <laughs> um, he asked what all the fuss was about, and when they told him, he returned with them to Duckfield Yard, where around 15 people were gathered. Spooner stooped down, lifted the woman's chin, and found it to be slightly warm. As Spooner tilted the head back, Dime Shirts got his first glimpse of just how terrible the wound to her throat was I could see that her throat was fearfully cut he told a journalist later that day there was a great gash in it over two inches wide a stream of blood ran from the woman's throat and up the yard towards the door of the club there was also a doubled up piece of paper in the woman's right hand which it later transpired was a packet of cashews or breath freshness mints Punchy a kiss. Fucking hell. Morris Eagle and another club member had headed out of Burner Street and gone right along Commercial Road. Here they met PC Henry Lamb and told him, Come on, there's been another murder. Lamb alerted PC Edward Collins, another Edward, pick up the Edwards. <laughs> And together they followed the two men back to Duckfield's yard, where the crowd had now swelled to some 20 or 30 people. Lamb ordered the bystanders to keep back lest they get blood on their clothing and find themselves in trouble, and told Collins to go at once for Frederick William Blackwell, who lived at 100 Commercial Street. He then sent Morris Eagle to Lemon Street Police Station to summon further assistance. As the two men headed off, Lamb stooped down and felt the woman's face, finding that it was still slightly warm. Um, However, when he felt her wrist, he could detect no sign of a pulse. Mm -hmm. When asked by the coroner at the subsequent inquest whether the woman's clothing had been disturbed, Lamb replied, No, I could scarcely see her boots, and added she looked like she had been quietly laid down. Dr. Blackwell arrived in the yard at about quarter past one in the morning and having pronounced the woman dead, obvious. <laughs> These lot are well class, I can't give it though. <laughs> gave it as his opinion that she had been dead for between 20 to 30 minutes. How close are all the times this murder yeah. that Jack the Ripper nearly got caught? Yeah. He timed it to such perfection. perfection. Unbelievable. He noted that the woman was wearing a check silk scarf, the um, the bow of which was, to, was turned to the left and pulled tightly. At the inquest, he stated that um, he had formed the opinion that the killer had first taken hold of the back of the, of the silk scarf and pulled his victim backwards onto the ground. He, however, couldn't be certain whether the woman's throat was cut while she was standing or after she'd been pulled backwards. Once the killer had cut her throat, slicing through the windpipe, 
she would not have been able to cry out and would have bled to death within uh, within about a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. Shortly after Dr. Blackwell's arrival, PC Lamb gave orders to close the gates into Duckfield's yard and told everybody to remain where they are, where they were. He then carried out a search of the club um, premises, examining people's hands and clothing for bloodstains in the process. He had found nothing suspicious. He went round to the cottages at the rear of number 42 Burner Street and woke the residents, who had apparently remained asleep throughout the excitement of the previous 30 or so minutes. Mm-hmm. The, bre- um, the residents appeared very frightened, and when they asked Lamb what had happened, uh, what had happened, he told them nothing much, as he didn't want to alarm them any further. Lamb then returned to the body to find that Inspector West, Inspector Pinhorn, and Dr. Phillips had arrived at the scene. Inspector Edmund Reed was alerted by a telegram at 1.25am and headed directly to Burner Street from Commercial Street Police Station. When he arrived, Phillips and Blackwell were examining the woman's throat. All the people in the yard were then interrogated and their names and addresses were taken. Once they had given a satisfactory account of themselves and their, and their movements and their hands and pockets had been inspected and searched, they were allowed to leave. A more thorough search was then made of the cottages and the names of the residents ascertained. Um, Hopes of apprehending the killer in his hiding place were briefly raised when the door of a loft was found to be locked from the inside, but on forcing it open the police found it empty. Reed then minutely uh, inspected the wall near to where the body was lying and found no traces of blood on it. At 4.30am um, the body was removed to St George's Mortuary in Cable Street and at 5pm PC Albert Collins washed the blood away from the yard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is that's it for the Third, third. This is the fourth. Right. Yeah, we've got two more. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and the fourth one is Catherine Eddowes, who I met, who was the one singing. Oh, Chrissy Kate. At one forty-four a.m., P.T. Watkins turned out of Leadall Street, strolling along Mitre Street, and veered right into Mitre Square. Almost immediately, he saw a sight that sent him reeling back in horror. Catherine Eddowes was lying on her back in a pool of blood, with her clothes thrown up over her waist. Starting like on his calling card, so to speak. Yeah. Catherine Eddowes was lying on her back. Oh, I've already said that. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Racing across the square, Watkins burst into Keely and Tong's warehouse, where he, where he knew retired policeman George Morris was working as a night watchman. For God's sake, mate, cried Watkins, come to my assistance. Here is another woman cut to pieces. Pausing to get his lamp, the night watchman followed Watkins to the square's southwest corner and took one look at the body and raced off along Mighty Street towards Aldgate, blowing furiously on his whistle as he can. In Aldgate, he met PC James Harvey and PC Holland and brought them back to the square. Holland went immediately to fetch Dr. George Willem Secura from his abode in nearby Dewey Street. 
Sakura was at the scene by 1.55am and later told the inquest that the place where the murder had occurred was probably the darkest part of Mitre Square. Although, although there had been certainly been through been enough light for the miscreant to uh, perpetrate the deed. Um, death, he said, there would have been instantaneous once the murderer had cut the windpipe and the blood vessels. Significantly, he was of the opinion that the murderer possessed no great anim- anatomical skill. In other words, he had only. Uh, he had only a basic knowledge of the anatomy and when he asked by the coroner if he would uh, have expected the murderer to be bespattered with blood um, he replied not necessarily but at the scene of the murder in the early hours of the morning Securia did little more than pronounce life extinct and decided not to touch the body preferring instead to await the arrival of the city police divisional, divisional surgeon Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown not that, not that man, not <laughs> Gordon Brown. Oh, not yeah, the, not the old prime minister who <laughs> screwed us over. Not him. <laughs> Core, we're doing well with yeah. no swearing, you know. Yeah. A couple of bits, you know. We're getting better. <laughs> Meanwhile, police officers were converging on Mitre Square from all over the city. Inspector Edward Collard arrived from Bishopsgate Police Station and ordered immediate search of the neighbourhood, instructing that door-to-door inquiries were, were to be made of the area around Mite Square. Next on the scene was Superintendent James McWilliam, head of the City Police Detective Department, who arrived with a number of detectives, all of whom he sent off to make a thorough search of the Spitfield streets and lodging houses. As the officers began to fan out through the streets, several men were stopped and questioned, but to no avail. The killer, it appeared, it simply melted away into the night. Which is just him, in it? You yeah. know what I mean? He's just... Classic Jack. Yeah, <laughs> good old Jack. <laughs> He's just a beast, isn't he? You know what I mean? Um, it is probable that he made his escape via the adjacent St. James's Place, where there was a Metropolitan Fire Escape Station. Yet, the fireman on duty had um, had seen or heard nothing. Neither had City Police Constable Richard Pierce, who lived at number 3 Mitre Square, where his bedroom window looked across at the murder site. George Morris, the night watchman, whose whistle had first alerted the police at large to the atrocity, expressed himself totally baffled as to how such a brutal crime could have been committed close by, uh, close by without him hearing a sound. It's all a bit mad, isn't it? Um, Stranger Hill was the fact um, was the fact that that at that exact moment that Catherine Eddowes was go, was going with her murderer into Mike Square. Three city detectives, detectives Daniel Hulse, Robert Outram, and Edward Marriott. Another Edward, three <laughs> man, three Edwards. We're gonna be the band, Eddie and the Edwards. <laughs> <laughs> were busily orchestrating plain clothes patrols of the e- of the city's eastern fringe. Yet the murderer had apparently managed to slip past them undetected and then had headed back into the streets of, e- of the East End. Hulse was over by St. Botolph's 
church when he learned of the murder at just before 2am. Hurrying to Mitre Square, he gave instructions to the constables present to search the neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. Holster set off to make his own search, heading first for Middlesex Street, from which he turned up into Wentworth Street, where he stopped to question two men. Both, though, were, give, were able to give him a satisfactory account of their movements, and he allowed them to continue on their way. He then passed through Goulston uh, Street at around 2.20am, where he had noticed nothing untoward and then headed back to Mitre Square. Here he found the body of... Um, here he found that the body had been removed to the Golden Lane Mortuary. Right. Right. This is the last victim. Of these, like the, supposedly, yeah. Supposedly. It could have been more, it could have been less. Mm-hmm. A 25 years old Mary Kelly was much younger than the other victims of, uh, of Jack the Ripper. The Daily Telegraph described her as being of fair complexion with light hair and possessing rather attractive features. She had bunda. She a fit. <laughs> she was pink. <laughs> what's Jack the Ripper's first penting victim. Wait, what's another one they said? Leng, isn't it? Leng. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jack the Ripper's just sitting there going, hey, she's a leng, brother. <laughs> Go go killer. <laughs> no, he is not like that. He is a gentleman. Hey, yo, I go on, blood. <laughs> I'll just I'll talk tractor talk. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Remembering her in his memoirs fifty years later, Walter Dew claimed that he knew her quite well by sight and mm. told her I bet you did, brother. <laughs> that, he was like, hmm. That's what <laughs> got me. I was, I was doing I, well then. Hmm. <laughs> I, bet, I bet you did, brother. I bet you did. Like, oh, maybe uh, you, you never forget your first. <laughs> <laughs> your first what? You, uh, you forget your first look at her. Yeah. <laughs> your, your first sight of Mary <laughs> Kelly. You never forget it. Uh, how he would often see her parading along Commercial Street between Flower and Dean Street and all gate or along Whitechapel Road. She uh, she was, he continued, usually in the company of two or three of her kind, fairly neatly dressed and invariably wearing a clean white apron but no hat. She appears to have been well linked, well liked in the area. Well linked in the area. <laughs> Maybe she's been well linked. You get me? <laughs> Passed around from pillar to post. Oh Jesus! Well, that is their job, wasn't it? She Bless had more them. Mickey than in Disneyland. Oh my God! <laughs> Slam more times than a taxi door. <laughs> <laughs> she had sex a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, she she appears to have been well liked in the area, and the only bad thing those who knew her, uh, uh, who knew her could find to say th- about her. Oh, I'm finding it so difficult to speak. <laughs> uh, about her was that she was occasionally tipsy. She liked to drink. For the eight months prior to her death, she had been renting a room in Miller's Court of Dorset Street in Spitalfields. 
until two weeks before her murder, she had been living there with an unemployed Billingsgate fish porter named Joseph Barnett. His lack of earnings meant that the rent on the room was in arrears, and Mary had resorted to prostitution. This led to arguments between them, and during one particularly heated exchange, apparently when Mary was tipsy, a pane of glass in the window by the door had been broken. The window was stuffed with new papers and rags and was covered by an old coat. Then in late October, Mary invited a homeless prostitute named Julia to stay with them. This proved too much for Joe Barnett, who decided enough was enough and moved out. <laughs> can't handle this. <laughs> it's too much, it's too much. <laughs> I can't go. I've got two prostitutes living with me. Can't do nothing here. <laughs> I am a man of God. <laughs> I have ethics. <laughs> Maria... <laughs> Maria... Maria Harvey, who gave her occupation as laundress, uh, told police that she had stayed with Kelly in her room on the Monday and Tuesday nights prior to the murder. She had been. Uh, she had then taken a room in New Court, Dorset Street but had spent the Thursday afternoon with Mary Kelly in her room at Miller's Court. At around 7pm, Joe Barnett had arrived and Maria Harvey left, leaving behind her black crepe bonnet, an overcoat, two dirty cotton shirts, a boy's shirt and a girl's white petticoat. She left her old washing there, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Joe Barnett had remained on friendly terms with Mary Kelly, um and had last seen her alive when he called on her between 7pm and 8pm on Thursday the 8th of November. Called on her. Yeah. He later said that there was another woman with them in the room, but that she left first. It is unlikely that he was referring to Maria Harvey since he knew her and would surely have mentioned her by name. He also said that the woman lived in Miller's Court, which Maria, Maria Harvey did not. It is therefore possible that she was refer that he was referred to Lizzie Albrook. In his inquest testimony, Barnett, that was the fellow who was with her, mm-hmm. stated that he last saw her, like Mary Kelly, alive between seven thirty and seven forty five the night of Thursday before she was found. I was with her I was with her about one hour. This could have been interpreted either as he arrived at between half seven and seven forty five or that he left between seven thirty and seven forty five. Mm-hmm. Given that given that he said it was the last time that he saw her alive and that he was with her for about an hour, he probably meant the latter. A possible scenario is that he that he arrived at around seven PM at which point Maria Harvey left. Mm-hmm. Whilst he was with Mary Kelly, they were visited by Lizzie Albrook. Perhaps Lizzie and Mary chatted a little before Lizzie left. Of course, this is a mere suspicion, and that um, no suppose 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 suspicion supposition supposition supposition. Uh-uh. supposition. Oh, I don't know. And. <laughs> We're not illiterate. <laughs> I am illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a certain, uh, the exact sequence of events is, of course, now impossible. According to Barnett, as he left, he told Mary Kelly that he had no, 
that he had no work and was very sorry that he was unable to give her any money. Mm-hmm. Um, Barnett returned to his lodging house on Bishopsgate and, pl- and played uh, whist until 12.30am at which he, at which time he retired to bed. At around 4am on the morning of the 9th of November, two neighbours claimed that they had heard a faint cry of, Oh, murder. But cries of murder were quite a regular occurrence in the neighbourhood and often meant a drunken brawl was taking place or domestic violence was occurring. It was quite customary for those on the receiving end of such violence to scream murder. Local residents didn't want to get uh, didn't want to get involved, and so they d- they would ignore any such cries. As indeed, did the two neighbours of Mary Kelly ignore the cry that they heard? Jesus, man! At at ten forty five a.m. that morning, Mary Kelly's landlord John McCarthy sent his assistant Thomas Bowyer, who was also known as Indian Harry. <laughs> God knows why round to 13 Miller's Court to collect her overdue rent. Striding into Miller's Court, Bowyer banged twice on her door. There was no answer. No doubt believing that she was inside but unwilling or unable to pay her rent, Bowyer stepped around the corner, pulled aside a curtain that had covered the broken window pane. Moments later, an ashen-faced Bowyer staggered back into McCarthy's shop. Governor, he spluttered. I knocked at the door and could not make anyone answer. I looked through the window and saw a lot of blood. You don't mean that, Harry, was McCarthy's horrified response, and the two men hurried from the shop and into Miller's court. Stooping down, McCarthy pushed aside a curtain and gazed into the gloomy room. A sight of unimaginable horror met his eyes. The wall behind the bed was spattered with blood, on the bedside table was a pile of bloody human flesh, and there on the bed, barely recognisable as a human, lay the virtually skinned down cadaver of Jesus Mary Kelly. Christ. So this is the only one that's been killed inside as well? Inside, and completely different, really. It weren't just a throat so slit. So was it, was it him? That's the thing. That's why they, they don't know. Mm. But I think what linked, because they were all prostitutes. They've all been prostitutes. That's what's yeah. linked them, I think. McCarthy sent Bowyer to Commercial Street Police Station to fetch the police, and having first stopped to secure his shop, hurried after him. Inspectors Walter Dew and Walter Beck, the Walters, <laughs> were chatting inside the station when Bowyer arrived. Soon Beck and Dew, the Walters, were following Bowyer along Commercial Street in the direction of Dorset Court of Dorset Street. Sorry, when they arrived at Miller's Court, Dew tried the door, but it would not open. They've already done that. <laughs> <laughs> Inspector Beck therefore moved to the window and gazed into the room. Almost instantly, he staggered back. For sake, for God's sake, Dew, he cried, "Don't look." That'll just make you want to look. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> Dew ignored the order and, looking through the window, saw a sight which would stay with him to his dying day. 
The horror of what he saw was still vivid in his mind when he penned his memoirs 50 years later. Um, this is what Dew saw. As my thoughts go back to Miller's Court and what ha- happened there, the old nausea, in- indignation and horror overwhelm me still. My mental picture of it remains as shockingly clear as though it would have been yesterday. No, no savage could have been more barbaric. No wild animal could have done anything so horrifying. Mary Kelly's body lay on the bed, her head turned towards the window. Her face had been uh, mutilated beyond recognition, and one and one feature in particular struck um, Inspector Dew. The poor woman's eyes. They were wide open and seemed to be staring straight at me with a look of heart, a look of terror. In, that seemed to be a thing as well. He always used to turn the head towards yeah. like a window or something somewhere like where that. someone's going to notice it first. Sort yeah, of yeah. Um, indeed, so thoroughly were the mutilations to Mary Kelly's face that it, that her lover Joseph Barnett was later only able to identify her by her eyes and ears. Christ. Dr. Thomas Bond detailed her injuries in his subsequent post-mortem report. Even today, in order was as we are by graphic depictions of violence and bloodshed on TV and in film, the detached scientific note of this report makes for extremely discu- discomfort and disturbing reading. Do you want me to tell it? Listener discretion is advised. If you don't want to hear it, please... I'd say skip forward, but I don't know when to skip forward. Nah. Just mute it. Yeah. Then we'll give you a thumbs up. (coughs) Right. The body was laying was lying naked in the middle of the bed, the shoulders flat, but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned on was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was close to the body, with the forearm flexed at a right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress. The elbow bent and the forearm supine with the uh, supine with the fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart, the left thigh at right angles to the tr- to the trunk and the right foot and the right forming an obtuse angle with the pu- uh, with the pubes. What? What? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> the whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed, and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all round to the bone. Um, the viscera, viscera were found in various parts, viz the uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head the other breast by the right foot the liver between the feet and the intestines by the right uh, by the right side and the spleen by the left side of the body the flaps removed from the abdomen and the thighs were on the table the bed clo- the bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. The face was gashed in all directions. The nose, cheeks, eyebrows and ears were partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running 
uh, obliquely. Obliquely? Obliquely. Yeah. Uh, down to the chin. There were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across all features. That was brutal. Yeah. Some of it didn't make sense because I'm not a doctor. Nah. But. Mad. Jesus Christ. Madness, eh? That what gets me is why did he go so ham with yeah. Mary Kelly? And position. Yeah. The parts. That's, you know what yeah, I mean? that's like, so what the strange. hell? That's so strange. Maybe that was just like the Final Fantasy kind of thing. Like, yeah, maybe. Or it could have been something completely different. It could be. It might not it could be. Could have been Jack, a rage. Yeah, it might not be Jack the Ripper at all. Because mm. it don't sound like his mo. Well, the no, because the the blouse isn't up and it's inside. Yeah, and, and he don't he, he cut he, from what we're saying. He cuts the throat. Mm. He don't mutilate him. He he did. He used to mutilate. Yeah, them. but not to not that to extent. that extent. No, no. He never used to hack the fuck no. out of him. I can't help it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. He, he never used to like butcher him. No, it was very like neat, neat. Mm. If you know what I mean. But I. Jesus Christ! That one was a bit mad. That was a bit mad, yeah. But like, like you say with these these murders, like even even today, that would still be that's still barbaric. Yeah. Like they said, no animal could even do that. No, no. Whoever Jack the Ripper was, or whoever done that mur- that murder, murder specifically, is not right. Well, no. dead now, but they were just not right in the head. No, that is crazy. That is crazy. That that's is a pure savage. Yeah, that is something you'd expect to see on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, in it, something like that. But that was yeah, that is mad. Jesus. But yeah, they're the they're the five main murders. Yeah, like we said, it could be more, it could be less. No one knows for certain. No, who did it? Like whether it was Jack or some other Donny. Mm. No, nobody has a clue. But sadly, we never will. That's a sad reality. That Even though it's it. a good mystery and like, oh, who is it? The fact is, no one is ever gonna know. No, sorry about that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> But yeah, no, that is right because like with it being in the past and everyone who was there is dead mm-hmm. now. Yeah, it's just, it's uh, just speculation now. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, I'll see it in part two, but they they have pretty much summed up who it was. But still, I can't ever prove it. No. Can't ever prove it. I think that's why I enjoy it so much because every, you, Even, you could say anyone and you're not wrong. No. But you're not right, but you're not no, wrong. No, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I'm not saying like Queen Victoria done it herself. <laughs> but at the same time, could she have done it? <laughs> I just don't know. One is not amused with your prostitution. One shall cut your throat. Because that's the thing. That's why I think even with the last one, that's why they think it's Jack the Ripper because it was a prostitute. Yeah. For some reason, he just he, had, he, did he had not a thing. Like he had a thing for prostitutes. Mm. Well, well, he just liked when they weren't living. Yeah, <laughs> that's mad. Yeah, that is mad. Let's say, I've when we when we started this podcast, 
I remember we, um, we, we, I remember we, we were planning when we was actually doing our first episode. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I remember like you said, like, can we do serial killers? The first name that popped in my head was Jack, Jack the Ripper. Ripper. And even though like the first series was like all over the world, and well, in future ones are as well. Yeah. But we wanted to do this one just for the UK. That's why we saved it. Yeah. For the UK. Yeah, exactly. It's such. It is. Uh, I wouldn't say it's our big thing, but it's not. It's. I don't know how to word this. Like, it is a very common thing in the UK. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well-known thing. I mean, it's well-known worldwide. Yeah. But it's something that we have. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. The thing is, when you think of Victorian England, one of the first things you do think of is, is Jack, Jack the, the Ripper. Ripper. Because it's when it was based. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> it's just how many times he almost got caught as well. Or like I, how close it was. I think he'd done that on purpose. It seemed yeah, it just it's, seems it's like an it's urge, too it? perfect. It was too perfect. Like this but the, the at least two of them weren't it. They were at least they were half an hour dead. And for all we know, that first one where he said where he went up to Matey Boy said there's someone dead around there. That could have been him. I think that was. How quick it was. Yeah. That had to have been him. And how he walked away from the scene. Yeah. Because it seemed like back then, if like, a murder happened, it'd You'd be, be just gawped at gawped. It, wouldn't you? There was just crowds of people. You'd be shouting everything. Yeah. Whereas this bloke was just so calmly like, there's, there, there's, there's a, a dead body around there. There's a bit of murder there. And just walks off, walks into the night like nothing happened. That's what I mean. That's what makes him such an enigma. Yeah. I think that is why, because he, it seemed like he just was always in the shadows. Yeah. He'd just pop out, kill someone pop back in you'll never see him no but like we said who is it well we'll talk about that next week which is uh, which is mad isn't it yeah it's our first two part yeah That's mad do you want to do it no no alright fuck no, you no you, you you had it <laughs> I've really got a, <laughs> I'm going to have to like, get a rubber band every time I swear I've got to <laughs> myself like, so we're, we are trying to be a, a little bit better language yeah. for uh, We're not as, combo box. Even if I forget to edit some of these out, they're still not half as bad as what we usually are. Oh, nah. So, <laughs> nah, so true. We, we're doing pretty well. And it will, yeah. it will become natural. Yeah, I think so. I think the more we go on, yeah, yeah, it will be. Yeah. But, um, no, that, what do you think? Bit of a matters, isn't it? It is, mate. It is a bit of a matters. Especially that last one. That last one has actually baffled me. I felt sick fucking reading. Yeah. <laughs> I felt sick reading it. <laughs> it's who I am. <laughs> Can't help it. <laughs> but no, it, reading it, I was thinking, nah, this ain't real. This ain't real. Nah. It just don't sound, it just don't seem it. Like, you, you can't expect a man would do that to another person. Well, no. Or a person do it to another person. person. Yeah. Sorry, feminists. <laughs> <laughs> That's what gets me. It's just what goes off in your, your head, head to be able to do that and to, to continue doing it. Because obviously that last one, mm. it's going to take a fair time to do it. Yeah. To keep that same mentality. Not like halfway and going, all right, that's enough. And it's like, no, I've got to do this. But, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, like we always say, like, when we've done, like, when we've done um, Dennis Nielsen, Mm. Like, he was sick. Yeah. Like, he done mad things. But a lot of time, it was, like... They were dead a while before he yeah. cut, him up, cut, him up, cut him up. Whereas, like, 
he was doing it while there, there was probably still a bit of light in him. Yeah, exactly. That's the sad thing about it. You imagine lying there and have, like while in your dying breaths, in such pain, you, yeah, seeing someone cut you up. Oh, and mate. Just, yeah, it is a bit mad. But that was said. Uh, give us your thoughts in the comments yeah. or through our social medias. Mm. We will find, uh, like we said, next week, part two, where we'll be discussing who. Yeah, the actual Ripper actually who, who is. done it. Yeah. Um, with that, you can find, if you're listening to us, you can also f- follow us on Facebook, mm-hmm. which is Missing Mysteries in Black and White. It's a group, so you have to be approved to be in, but don't we'll worry We'll approve anyone. Yeah, pretty it's much. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, which is Missing Mysteries underscore, like the actual little underlined bit. You can uh, follow us on Twitter, which is Miss Mysteries 10. Or was it Miss Mysteries 1? Miss Mysteries, Mysteries 1. 1. You can follow us on TikTok. We're actually on TikTok, which is Miss Mysteries 10. Yeah. You can email us at missmysteries.outlook.com. And that could be what you thought of this show, what you thought of any show, sightings you've had, mm-hmm. um, experiences you've had, um, ideas for the show, criticisms, uh, prizes, which we'd prefer. Mm-hmm. Anything to do with Miss Mysteries. Or even not. Just yeah. Mess- yeah, email us. Why not? Um, you can subscribe and watch us on YouTube. What you say? You actually, see us all gunned up. <laughs> <laughs> um, Miss Mysteries, but it's easy to find it on you on our Facebook page. Yep. Uh, you can listen to us at Josh Podbean, Spotify, Amazon, Samsung, Player FM, Podchaser, and iHeartRadio. Fantastic. And like I say, and hopefully soon we'll be on Combo, Combo Box TV. Exactly. Which will be incredible. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's like a Netflix. You subscribe to it, two ninety nine a month, and you ain't just got to watch us. I mean, we'd rather you did. Yeah, but you, you can watch any <laughs> all the all the others on there. There yeah, is some exactly. good videos on there. Like I say, Deborah Hatswell's on there. Fully recommend her. She is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cryptic creatures. They always have guests talking about their experience with it being Bigfoot, Dogman, whatever. Incredible, and uh, yeah, many others. So yeah, please give them a watch. Yeah. Um, yeah, but no, thank you very much for listening and watching. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Happy hunting.